Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. I was trying to think of what kind of uh, custom music I could compose for today's episode about the spiritual but not religious. And, you know, there's certain artists, like, if I could use Bon Iver music for free, I would, I would maybe do that. But I thought maybe, like, an ambient sort of electronic thing works best, like, vaguely new age, which is not all that different from the music on this show in general. But... I tried my hand at it again because it's fun to write these custom intro pieces. So enjoy that, I guess. But I won't spend a whole bunch of a time, a whole bunch of time just playing it for you because ambient music is kind of boring if you pay close attention to it. So rather, let's just get into uh, the normal introduction here. Now, if you've spent any significant amount of time reading or listening to scholars of religion or looking at polling of religious groups, like a lot of Pew research, etc., you have probably heard the term spiritual but not religious. It's definitely come up sometimes on interviews at the show. And this will usually come with a sentence or two of a description, right? Something like people who do not identify with any particular religion or people who are neither religious nor atheist. All of which is true, but I wanted to go deeper, right? And look a little closer, not least because many of the people who listen to this show find themselves in this category of spiritual but not religious and many patrons I know. 
find themselves here. Another fact that's often included when we're talking about the spiritual but not religious is that they are the fastest growing religious group in America. Yet another reason to take a longer peek under the hood. I'm joined today by returning guest Terry Shoemaker, who is a researcher and a professor of religious studies at Arizona State University. About a year ago, he was on the show talking about what he calls culture war Christianity. Fantastic episode. He's always great to talk to you. There's a link to that episode in the show notes if you haven't heard that one. You don't need to listen to it first or anything. You could listen to them at whatever order you'd like. And in addition to discussing the spiritual but not religious, we also talk about the possible future effects of both the pandemic and the evangelical marriage to Trump for the future of American Christianity. Now let's get ambient, huh? Terry, thank you so much for joining me again. People might recognize you from the previous episode we did about being weaponized in the culture war. I think it was called To Reject Culture War Christianity or something like that was the name. You know, a nice biting kind of a name. Uh, But today we're talking about um, the spiritual but not religious, this kind of emerging category of uh, spiritual people, particularly we'll talk about America, although – If you have any sort of global insights, that would be interesting as well. I'd like to start by asking you an autobiographical question, but having you kind of frame it in these terms. So you were, I believe you were raised Christian. I forget, uh, I think Kentucky, is that right? From Kentucky, yes, sir. And so can you describe your your spiritual and religious upbringing to the extent that you can actually separate those two out, which will kind of help us get a lens into what we're talking about today? Yeah, I think maybe my upbringing mirrors part of this phenomenon in that uh, my parents, my mom and my dad, uh, kind of came at this from different perspectives. And so really, really kind of informed by their own backgrounds. And so growing up in South Central Kentucky, uh, my mom was from the area and she grew up in kind of a, a hellfire brimstone, you're a sinner, you're garbage, you need to repent every week, kind of fundamentalist church. And then my dad, who grew up more in uh, central Ohio, uh, was really, really influenced by his father, uh, who was uh, a Korean War veteran and came back from the Korean War and uh, told all of his children, I think there were nine of them, uh, told all of his children, uh, there's no way there can be a God if uh, if there is a God, that God is impotent and uh, and unable, or he's kind of a jerk and unwilling to get involved. And so I think uh, growing up with those two uh, different uh, spectrums, uh, or uh, I guess perspectives, really like formed me in a particular kind of way in that my mom had this kind of a very strict religious and you had to be in the organized religious part of it. That was very important. And then my dad was kind of, you know, there's good in this world, just kind of find it. And so, right. And so like I am, I grew up in that there wasn't a tension uh, per se, as far as them trying to push either side on me, but there is a tension there. Well, and people can of course be both. They can be spiritual and religious. They could be religious and not spiritual. Although, uh, depending on our definition, they, they can or can't be, which l- let's let's move into that now. But that's very helpful. So I think the first thing to, to say here is we're going to get into, you know, uh, some more nuanced definitions of what how we might think of spirituality and religion. 
But when we're talking about the the category, like in demographics, right? So there's a new Pew Research thing and the spiritual but not religious or the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, have risen 5%, you know, whatever. Those are just self-report measures, right? That's like people checking a single box, Christian or none of the above or I'm spiritual. It's It's completely – when we're talking about that stuff, it's just whatever people think that word means, how they understand it, and how they answer the survey. What what's valuable about that is that stays constant over time, right? So we can we can see the we can when you have a simple definition like that, you get to see the trends. But that's not going to be uh, very meaty in terms of, of course, people have different definitions. Am I am I right so far? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, it's these quantitative studies. I, I'm pretty sure for the Pew research, which I think Pew is going to have to do some reworking, uh, but it's, you know, it's these randomized calling. So I don't know who answers the phone anymore to, to kind of address these things, but you're exactly right. Um, so, uh, you know, how do you religiously identify is, is kind of the question that's tossed out. And a lot of people are saying like, well, I don't. Right. And so then they're a nun, you know, any, and, and so that's kind of a category quantitatively, and there's a lot of research that's tried to parse that out. And then this whole thing, spiritual but not religious, is a little harder to quantify when it comes to those type of affiliation um, studies. And so then spiritual but not religious, I've seen more of late, and I'm, I'm glad to see this, where peop- where they are um, asking the question, are you spiritual or religious? Are you spiritual and religious? Right. Are you you know, one or not, you know, kind of the thing. And right. so those are kind of two different kinds of studies that they're starting to do, but I think they are responding to the fact that uh, people are beginning to use a different language for a lot of uh, their religiosity, spirituality in this world. Yeah. So just to clear a, a little bit up in this, in this world. So there's a, there contrast between what are called nuns and duns. So mm-hmm. a done with religion person would, would click agnostic or, atheist. So they would check that box or they would answer on the call when given the options. So someone that that neither is an atheist or an agnostic, but nor are they religiously affiliated, they end up in this nun category, which is the original impetus for this category of spiritual, but not religious. So they've got, they're not saying there's no God. They're not denying a divine realm, you might say, but they are unaffiliated. Am I getting that right? I think that's right. And uh, in uh, some of the studies that I've actually read where they kind of retract with those people who identified as none, a very small percentage of them actually identified as atheist or agnostic. Uh, but a huge percent of them, the majority of them, let me say it that way, the majority of them said, uh, you know, I, I might still read a religious text. I might still go to a religious service. There's something about that. Yeah, that the label. pray maybe, right. Yeah, prayer, I still believe in certain things. Yeah. Uh, but there's something about the religious label that they don't want to affiliate with. Okay, so let's take a little break from that sort of official, uh, you know, Pew Research kind of demographic designation. And let's dig a little bit deeper to how we might understand these terms at a more phenomenological level. So um, I want to start with Doug Shirley, who I interviewed a while back for, I think it was like Friends, Families, Kids, Marriage, Divorce, something like that was the title of the episode. He's a professor and uh, a psychologist up here in Seattle. Um, And he gave something that I thought was not only quite clear, but as I have begun my own, um, I've just finished my first year in my psychology doctorate program and been looking into 
this stuff whenever I have a open enough assignment that I can kind of choose my topic. You know, I tend to go to the kind of, um, you know, deconversion, spiritual, we're not religious, spiritual trauma world because I want to focus on that. So the way that Doug said it was like spirituality is sort of the the draw toward the transcendent that basically every human being has. That's how he described it, whether or not they call it spirituality or whatever. And then the religious is sort of the codification uh, of that drive into agreed upon rituals, beliefs, practices, attendance, you know, prayer, whatever. So you could pray to God. But if you pray the Lord's prayer, that's like a religious prayer. If you just go, God, I know you're out there, that would just merely be a spiritual prayer, something like that. So the the organization, the sort of uh, agreed upon terms and practices is the difference between spirituality and religion. How does that strike you, Terry? Uh, just just hearing that, it strikes me as very, uh, very Rudolph Otto. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the the idea of the holy. The idea of the holy, which is on my shelf, one of those classics yeah. I have not read. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's you know Otto is in the line of uh, Friedrich Schleiermacher, and um, who is trying to think about uh, kind of religious discontents. But let me, I'm I'm strangled. Uh, what yeah. Otto says, and I and I think this gets to to uh, Shirley's point, is Otto argues that every human can have a uh, a religious experience. He calls it a numinous experience. Yeah. Numinous. Right. Yeah. And he wants to, and it's kind of this, he doesn't, he tries his best not to define it while defining it. Right. right? He, I, I, okay, so I actually have read the first like 15 pages. Yeah, yeah. What's worse. Uh, that's probably worse than having, that it. but he, he really says like, I'm trying to coin a new term here because there isn't a term I'm calling it the numinous. It is yeah. like the, yeah. Transcendent is a, a pretty good word for it that, you know, something like that. Yeah, yeah. So the religious experience for him is this numinous experience that that is an engagement with what he calls the mysterium tremendum. It creates all this all inspiring. Yeah, yeah awe. But yeah. yeah, but it's also terrifying in a lot of ways, right? Hmm. And what, what Otto says is, is that because of that experience, and again, for him, it's universal. Because of that experience, humans want to try to somehow get at that experience again. Yeah. And the well, way I w- they can go ahead. Yeah. Well, and so what they do is they want to tell everybody about this experience. And so then everybody kind of jumps on board. And so they try to organize around to create the experience. And that's what he says is religion. Hmm. That's the codifying trying to get to that. And so you end up creating prayers, you end up creating songs, you end up kind of having these elite leaders uh, who try to usher you into the religious experience. But for Otto, that never gets you there. You can only have this spiritual experience, which we might, he, I don't think he uses that term uh, because that's not what he would have had. Right. That's not how what spirituality was then. But, uh, but for him, this numinous experience is what we would call this transcendent experience. And religion is the attempt to get at that, but it doesn't quite get to it. Interesting. So he's kind of in that like transcendentalist camp, like Emerson, some of these more naturalist guys who are really eschewing the organized thing in in favor of, in their mind, like the straight dope, the, the you know, the, the straight interaction with the divine or the numinous or whatever. Yeah, I guess where he would maybe push back against them a little bit is that for him, his evidence is looking at biblical texts, particularly the Hebrew scriptures. Oh, yeah. Islamic texts, right? And he finds the numinous experiences in there. 
Okay. Right. Cool. Where throwing them may have more of a like, no, 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 you need to be on the ponds. Just get that's to the nature. Only way you yeah. can find it. Yeah. Right. Okay. Cool. That's helpful. Yeah. So I guess my next my next thought here is that uh, I've been reading some of this literature, and I came across a study recently from 2013 that I am uh, I've been you know using for assignments and stuff. And these two researchers they did a religious priming study. So this is where. Uh, you know, before you ask someone to fill out a survey or do something else, you sort of prime them with one story or another story or one. You, they're standing in front of one building or they're standing in front of another building. You're you're trying to get at these sort of subliminal uh, forces. Right. So this particular one was trying to show through three separate studies that uh, priming for God and priming for religion create different responses in people. So this is kind of trying to operationalize to some extent this difference between religion and spirituality. I'll put a link to this paper actually in the show notes for if people want to read all three studies. So here's the one study that uh, I remember of the three. There are two families. They tell this a thought experiment. They say there are two families that are just in a town. They both need help, uh, you know, financial moving assistance, whatever. One of them is a member of your religious in group, so they're the same kind of Protestant you are, and one of them is not. They're like a Muslim family or something like that. Then they ask different people, you know, half and half, what would your reli- who would your religious leader want you to help? Who would your pastor, your imam, whatever, want you to help? And then they ask the other group, who would God want you to help? And what they found in this study and then correlates in their other two studies is there was a significant difference, something like 25% difference between uh, – if the if they ask the religious leader, my pastor, they want me to help the in-group member. If it's God, God wants me to help the out-group member. And so the more that something like this could be replicated, and I'm sure there's more studies that have you know attempted to or whatever, and I'm not up on all of that, that would point to sort of two different modules in our religious mind of like what God wants of me, what my religious community as as anchored in my pastor or something like that once of me. I don't know if you've come across this stuff, but I'm really curious as to your take. So I haven't come across that, that um, the specific study that you referenced, although it sounds absolutely fascinating. Um, it reminds me a bit of, I think, I think I get his first name, right? I think it's David Eagleton at Baylor, uh, who's doing a lot of, and I think you would find this very interesting, neurological studies uh, that are very similar in the sense that you kind of wire people up and then it flashes. Uh, so at the bottom of the screen, it's good or bad. And they're simply selecting good or bad, right? That's, that's all the, the, the subject is doing. But then a word pops up and he's trying to measure the time it takes for them to click good or bad, right? Because there's all kinds of pressures for us, uh, you know, for what we think we ought to do, but then how our brain. And so if the word Muslim pops up, he finds that people take, it's a little extra second before yeah. they click good, right? Yeah. In America, right? Just because of the Muslim stereotypes, et cetera. And so this reminds me a little bit of it, right? And I don't know that he does the the God church, God leaders, uh, religious leader thing, but it would be something probably very similar in the sense that if if you just threw up God, people may have kind of more, cozy feelings, uh, or if you put spiritual being or you put divine, right? I mean, you'd even have to parse out the names we use, right? but it, but when you use religious leader, you use a church institution, something like that, 
I would imagine there would be a, a kind of a slower response where people are trying to figure out now, what am I supposed to say here? Not huh. really where I'm at. So I think it gets yeah. to that, that, that you're right. We, we kind of have kind of visceral responses that then affect our, our neurological understandings of these things. Um, and so I, I think that's part of what we're seeing now is that there, there really is for certain people. And I don't have kind of quantitative or qualitative evidence of this, uh, except for like in some of the, the stuff that I've done where, where people are coming out of a religious heritage. And that seems to be a lot of this new SBNR is people who grew up particularly in Christianity in America um, and who are now post-Christian of some sort. And a lot of them have kind of a visceral reaction to religious institutions. Well, so, yeah, so that's interesting. Kind of, kind of an implicit bias uh, approach mm-hmm. on this stuff, sort of like how quickly – which is how right. those tests work for people who haven't taken any of those. Like, and they don't just have them for racism. There's implicit bias around like American ideals. There's implicit bias around uh, like food. There's all kinds of these tests, but they're basically about how quickly your automatic responses work. So they're right. in, in other words, they're trying to get at like the system one, the kind of mm-hmm. uh, the elephant in Heights language and, and see what they can measure about it. But what I found so interesting about the priming studies is they they're the issue with religion. So I just mentioned Jonathan Haidt in his book, The Righteous Mind, where he gives the writer an elephant analogy. He also talks about how morality and, and this is true also of religion, as religions tend to be moral systems, it binds and it blinds. So it binds people together. They have strong community. They have, you know, they help raise each other's kids. They tend to have happier marriages, you know, yada, yada, yada. They give more to the poor time and money. But they also uh, are blinded to the outgroup. So where you tend to find, as far as I know, the clearest negatives in religious in religiosity and religious affiliation is negative attitudes toward the outgroup, right? So what's so interesting about this priming study is it it flips that, right? So yeah, so maybe religion does prime us, does move us away from the outgroup, but God doesn't. God moves us toward the outgroup. And uh, so there's something just really fascinating about that. And and one concrete example, I'm going to bring in Robert P. Jones one other time later. But in his recent research on white evangelicals and his own developed like racism index, which uh, is more of like a systemic racism kind of index than it is an individual racism index, which is wise because basically nobody will admit to being a you know a personal racist anymore. Uh, he actually finds that more church attendance – among white evangelicals correlates to higher scores. So it's not just like these marginal Christians who aren't really Christian. What it, what it looks like is an actual cost of being a committed believer is you will not appreciate the outgroup as much as your correlate who is not a religious person. Now, of course, that's not the only thing in the world. Outgroup attitudes are not the only moral issue, but it's a real, it's a real problem. And so I'm, I'm really, I'm, that's why I'm so fascinated by, oh, but maybe that's not God. Like, and so maybe in this context, maybe spirituality does not carry the outgroup, negative outgroup uh, consequences that religion does that, and you know, you know me a little bit, listeners know me well enough to know that I'm not arguing for the uh, abolition of religion. Uh, But if that's what we're really working with, then let's work with it and let's understand it. Yeah, I, I mean, just my initial response is that, um, and 
by the way, Robert Jones, he, he actually has a new book out now, just came out called White Too Long. Um, I think it's from that book, the stuff that he, I just listened to his Fresh Air interview. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and he has the end of White Christian America. Uh, but I, I think you're right. I think if, if you are a religious person committed to your community, I would think you would need to be aware that even just the concept of religion and organized religion may be a trigger for certain people. Right. Just to be aware of that. Um, And that but then there's something that's not triggering in the same way about saying spirituality. Right. That these 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 are categories that people are using in very specific ways in their personal lives. And religion somehow is tethered to something negative, whether that's an experience, whether that's an assumption, whether that's like uh, this is what I see or what I've seen from other people. And spirituality isn't. It's it's fresher now. And so it's I guess it's more malleable in a lot of people's minds and they can do as they please with it and, and explore uh, kind of the cultural marketplace of options that they have. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, you wouldn't want to put too much into this distinction if the distinction is primarily one of language where right. like just for historical accidental reasons, religion has been saddled with all the negative stuff about the religious life, the word and the word spirituality just hasn't been saddled with anything yet. So you want to right? that's the kind of thing to be yeah. careful of. You don't want to over you don't want to read too yeah. much into those findings. Right. Well, and at the same time, as a scholar, um, this and none of my colleagues want to want to hear this. But by doing these studies and say, starting to talk about religious nuns, there are people starting to refer to themselves as that. Right. Like we create the categories to help us understand. And then people like when I explain this to my students all the time, they're like, yes, that's what I am. And I'm like, no, don't call yourself that. That's not the point of this. This is like uh, a sociological category. It's not an identifier. Right. But then we create things in the world and people grab onto those things and use them and make them their own. So you, you mentioned a second ago about how uh, religion can have some of these triggers that spirituality doesn't. And I, I want to, I want to dig there because this is the population that you study. Uh, and we talked a lot more about it on the previous episode, but you know, you, you've done a lot of these qualitative and quantitative studies with these people who have basically left sort of Southern and Midwest uh, church, you know, life or whatever religious life. So when you, can you give us a couple examples, just put a little meat on the bone, how, how something religious could trigger them in a way that something spiritual would not trigger them. Yeah. So my um, immediate, and I can't remember if, if, uh, if I repeated this from the last podcast, it's been like a year who cares. Yeah. 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 No one's going to remember, but me. (laughs) Um, but, uh, one person actually told me a story about, particularly it was his in-laws that he had a really, really difficult time with when they decided they were going to leave the church that, uh, he was in leadership and it was really the church's stances on, uh, gay marriage, uh, the church's really kind of economic understandings of who's poor and that association of immorality of poverty. And so they made a decision to leave. And then they actually end up moving across the country, but literally for their health to kind of get away from it all. And his, uh, it had been four or five years. So he'd been completely out of, uh, any type of organized religiosity, uh, still working it out in his brain, what he is or what he isn't. And his in-laws come out to visit and, and it's a, I think it's around Christmas time and say, you know, we're all here as a family. Would you all please go to church with us? You know, this is our request. And so he like sincere, like sincerely wanted to 
he's trying to make amends with them in some ways. So he goes to the church service with them. And I don't know the type of church or anything else. I don't think it even matters. And he says, as soon as the music starts, he can't help it. He starts shaking. He starts sweating. His heart beats like extra fast. And, uh, and all it, like he immediately kind of started having a panic attack and had to leave. And then that's interpreted by his in-laws as he set this up so that he could make a display. Right. 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 And, um, and like, he's sincere, like, no, I can't be in that space anymore. It was so damaging to me. Right. And it's not that he didn't know anybody at that particular church. He didn't know any of the leaders. He didn't know anything about it. It was simply the space, the form of it triggered him in particular type of ways, you know, against that visceral reaction. Um, and, and I think that's quite common. Uh, and I'll share one other story. I had a young lady uh, who grew up homeschooled. Uh, her dad actually even wrote uh, a homeschooling science book that was anti, uh, that was cre- procreationism and things like that. And, um, and to this day, she says that if anybody like even approaches the converse, that conversation, which she says is a religious conversation, she literally just turns around and walks away. Like she won't engage it at all because of like what it does to her physically. Um, and so, you know, th- those type things, they have, it has effects on people. And, and we have to recognize that the spiritual, but not religious, is it a frou-frou move? It is a little bit of a frou-frou movement of pick and choose. And there's some critiques of it, right? But for a lot of people, it's a sincere kind of still searching mode um, where religion has uh, ha- has been weaponized against them in many ways, uh, and it's tainted. And so spirituality allows them to still try to seek and discover things without the baggage that religion has for them personally. So uh, as you tell those stories, I do remember you telling them a, a year ago or whatever, but let's let's talk about them from a, an angle that we didn't talk about that time, which is especially the one with your uh, the guy going into the church service, right? Like that wasn't his church. It, it gets very clearly at a distinction, right? So he was willing to go with them as a show of good faith, which probably means if they had said, hey, Josh, you know, that's not his name. Hey, Josh, like. How do you see God these days? Like he would have been open to having a conversation about spirituality. Anybody who's willing to go to give it a shot is not trying to be an asshole. Right. right. But then once he gets in the space where all the it's really Doug, Doug Shirley's thing, yeah. it's like it's the codification of that. Right. So it's these songs. It's these lighting cues. It's these kind of uh catchphrases that are used right all the in-group stuff that aesthetic experience is the thing that triggers him so that really gets at it nicely i think yeah i i think you're exactly right the forms the symbols all those things work on him in a particular type of way and interestingly those two people because i still keep in touch with them so he at this point he's actually his spiritual journey ended and he found he's I'm atheist. I'm nihilist. I know who I am now, but the young lady um, with the whole creationism background is still a seeker and, and still kind of into things. And so, I mean, it just shows like there's not a singular trajectory for these people. They're, they're searching for what they search and the, the past experiences will have different levels of impact on their understanding of these categories as well. Yeah. Let me let me turn slightly and ask you this question. Since the Enlightenment, basically, there have been kind of like clockwork uh, predictions that, OK, 
religion is going to fade away. Uh, we've figured it out, you know, uh, from Marx to Hume to whoever. I don't actually know if Hume did that or not. Um, it doesn't happen, right? Like it, it never seems to happen anyway. Uh, you know, it's kind of happening in in Europe in a sense in terms of organized religion, but I don't know the research there in terms of how spirituality has has stayed. Uh, I mean, I think there's quite a revival of neo-paganism in Europe. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong on that. Um, but so is this one example of, you know, the spiritual but not religious? Could this be that happening? Or do you think it's more like the religious impulse or the Ralph Otto's term, the numinous impulse, uh, finding its finding its other ways to, to be, I don't know, uh, expressed through people's lives? Yeah, that and that is kind of the question of the day, um, honestly, <laughs> you know, that, like, you know, so in religious studies, we want to study spiritual, but not religious. But then we want to ask the really big, broad question. What does that tell us about uh, the ethos of the modern world uh, and big questions like that? And so, yeah, I mean, the, the secularization theory. So secularization as the, the the definition that I typically use of this with my students is a slowly diminishing religious authority. Uh, and so then a society can secularize, right? That yeah. uh, the, the churches, and we see this in Enlightenment, 16, 17, 1800s, we start to see how this works out in different countries to where the church's authority is literally taken away by the development of the nation state. Yeah, it right? becomes the nation state. It becomes essentially the market, the market and the yeah. whatever the particular form of governance is. That's where the authority ends up lying, not with the church anymore. Right. And so now we're, you know, we're a very individualized society. So we start seeing this. And so by the 1950s and 60s, the secularization theory was it because we saw massive declines in the number of people practicing religion, typically in what we, you know, first world countries, developed countries, more developed countries, however we want to say that. And then all of a sudden in this uh, really kind of 60s, you kind of see this, this spiritualism, which is a lot of times fueled by psychedelic drugs and psilocybin and things like that. And then all of a sudden, 70s and 80s, and we get this massive revival, not just in the United States, but across the globe, really, right. of people uh, kind of going back to organized religion. And so then, you know, people like per uh, Peter Berger offered the desecularization theory, <laughs> right? And, and he had to right. admit, right? Berger, a sociologist, admits like, no, we were wrong on this. And we didn't see, we kind of didn't see a religious response to the diminishing of religious authority, right? We, we, we couldn't quite figure that out. And so we start to see, see these things. I don't know if, if this is secularization. I, maybe that's not the direction I typically think about this. What The way I think about this is that if we have something pre-secularization uh, that we call, typically people call it something like, uh, primitive religion, or we have the, the negative word that was used at the time was calling all of that stuff magic. That was yeah, it. Right. It was, yeah, it was an anti-magic project. The, the, the very, not to go too deep into comparative religion, but that it maps exactly on with the history of comparative religion. Yeah. The, the golden bow, like this early kind yeah. of like maximalist, we're going to, we're going to lump everything under the same thing. And look, all these people all over the world believe magical things. And yep. uh, very influential on like Aldous Huxley and other people, but like pretty thoroughly debunked now uh, within comparative religion. So it, it just maps along. I think it's interesting that you see that kind of rhyming between the the the, uh, the fields. 
Yeah, I mean, so this this is Tyler, this is Fraser. There's a great book if anybody's interested in this. They call it the uh, the book is called The Myth of Disenchantment uh, by uh, Jason uh, Jofferson Storm. And what's really fascinating is is that as they're pointing to things and saying science has stepped in, uh, we're now empirical, we're not about magic. Um, it leads to a different type of society uh, and people like Sigmund Freud and, and some of those scholars who are, are really kind of antagonistic towards religion are still going to say um, tarot card readers and things like that. So it gets really, really complicated. So then you have this, this time of magic, you have this time of science. And the way I see it at this point is science was supposed to offer so many answers and, and science has given us comforts and everything else but it's almost like we're disillusioned right now with the comforts that's been provided. It, it didn't give us meaning. It, it failed to really kind of add anything like a, existential to our world. And so now the spiritual but not religious in my mind is more like, uh, what, how do we tap back into that magic part, but also hold on to the science part? Um, and then maybe we can be more holistic in what we're doing. And so that's, that's more yeah, how I look at it. That's so interesting. It, it's not – the way you describe it, it's not that different than this podcast's goal, although I am explicitly religious and I am – you know, I identify with more progressive kind of mainline forms of Christianity. It is in, – in, in one sense, it's exactly that. It's like – I mean the tagline on the show is you have permission to take Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And the implication being that – the way that a lot of us were raised with Christianity, it, we didn't take the modern world seriously. We sort of eschewed it. We were afraid of it. Uh, it was seen to be at odds with our faith. And so I'm, I myself and the peop- most of the people that I interview, at least if that's what they're kind of talking about, is trying to kind of keep those things together. Although I'm more comfortable with the, you know, the official. Uh, to be clear, I don't have I don't have a lot of religious trauma, so I uh, it's easier for me. Too. I, I do have some around end time stuff, but thankfully that was never like the center of my uh, church experience or my Christian school experience. Thank God. Um, if I had more of that, who knows? It'd be up. Uh, but okay, so I want to come back to secularization. Um, but before we do that, and before we take a little break, um, it strikes me that this little angle of you know Doug's approach of the sort of the, the spiritual as the individual search for the numinous or the transcendent and the religious being the sort of institutionalization, uh, the codification of, of those experiences and desires is an angle to look at what you just talked about, the, the secularization and the desecularization. So that whole conversation to me uh, seems to be about societies, cult like uh, groups of people, governing bodies, uh, the major institutions that form public life, right? So we've got these church denominations declining in attendance or and then now we've got charismatic and evangelical Christianity sort of blowing up in the in the global south. Right. In mm-hmm. Latin America, in Southeast Asia and in uh, Africa. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, but all of that is population level. So what I'm kind of wondering is what is the relationship between the the population level trends and the individual person? Because mostly we've been talking about at the individual level. Oh, I've, I have had this experience with religion and now I'm comfortable. You know, the individual person fills out the pew form, not the institution. Right. So I don't know what, I just want to know what you think the relation is between 
this more meta population level conversation and the individual conversation, if we could kind of tie those together a bit. Yeah. So my immediate response is, in my mind, one of the ties in, in thinking about it is uh, really the, the individual realities that align with the broader social realities, right? So uh, for instance, and this is like, I, I don't know that we talk about this enough when we talk about the spiritual, but not religious. So if religion is the codified version of this searching for transcendence, a part of that codification is a structure of time, right? That the, the communities are going to meet, say, on Sunday morning, yes. Wednesday night, things yeah. like that, right? And that's fine if communities do that, right? Yeah, but I mean, mountain if, climbing clubs also do that, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but, but what if the economic realities of, say, people under the age of 50 are that they're working multiple jobs, that it's yeah. the gig economy, yeah, and, and, they lit- and they literally can't really make it those days, or that Sunday morning time is like their one day to go do laundry, yeah. and they have to do it, right? And so to me, that's – and then the other question, so the, the, so the individual realities are part of the social conditions, um, and, and they're in conversation. And then the other thing is, is the conversation about authority, I think that we, we had, this is Charles Taylor's idea of kind of the secular age is that the individual now is the supreme authority. In the um, West, yeah. In, in the in Western ideas, right? And this is like, comes down to like influences ideas of human rights, uh, ideas right. of love, all kinds of things. Which I, in and the when, West, ironically, comes out of the Judeo-Christian tradition. Exactly And sort right. of uh, subverts itself. Or as I once heard Robert Bella say, kind of pushing back on, you know, the, the, um, the failure of, of Christendom is like, or it succeeded and it convinced right. everybody of its main <laughs> goals and it's not so necessary anymore. You could kind of look at it either way. Exactly right. And so with the individual being the, the kind of the ultimate authority and guide for lives, then, you know, I had a, a, a good friend of mine one time decided he was going to go to, I think it was a, a, a kind of a very traditional uh, Presbyterian church, uh, PC. PCA PCUSA. is the oh PCUSA is the some of them are gay affirming PCA is like the southern one it's yeah yeah no it was, it was yeah. PCUSA yeah and uh, and when he came out he was like you know what it was actually quite beautiful they had org he doesn't have any type of religious kind of trauma yeah. the organ was great the uh, I really like the symbols I really like the staging of certain things but I just kept asking myself but why do I need this right and so his question stems from a very kind of like what could that institution supply me uh, in, in my individual life? And he couldn't come to a good answer, a positive answer to continue doing that. Yeah, that's so interesting. This is um, – we could just spend a couple minutes on this before the break. But I, I am – I'm increasingly feeling like there is a sort of um, an aesthetic and organizational market niche, mm-hmm. you know, for for people under 50 especially – where for some of us, you know, like I, I happen to really like, for instance, Catholic mass and Episcopal worship services with like, I'm, I'm pretty ADD and I love the structure. And actually it provides me something uh, that actually does really help me, right? To, to have, oh, I'm, I'm taking the Eucharist every time. Oh, I'm, oh, I'm standing for the gospel reading. Like viscerally, that's helpful for me to kind of orient things. Um, whereas, you know, for instance, my father-in-law became a Christian through the Jesus movement. And he would come to services like that with my wife and I and just be like, 
I love you guys, but I don't get it at all. Like that, mm-hmm. he just he grew up in a legalistic Lutheran situation, and he just loves the freedom of like a Calvary Chapel service, right? right. So uh, different strokes. Uh, but I think you're right. I mean, and I even struggle to want to go a lot of times because my weekly rhythm is not the same as my parents' weekly rhythm was. Uh, and you're getting to that in sort of these economic and career facets. And and then certainly, like, um, if theology was all that mattered, all my listeners would just go to Methodist and Lutheran and Episcopal, you know, ELCA churches. Mm-hmm. and Like, most of us listeners are just mainline Protestants, but we don't. So what's going on, right? So there's there's something about the structure, the aesthetics. I don't know. It's like uh, there's like a real – I'm not going to become a church planner. I, I mean I'm not going to be a religious entrepreneur myself, but like there's room for some people to do some interesting stuff. Agree, disagree? I totally agree. And what you're getting at is what sociologists and religious studies call the religious marketplace, uh, particularly uh, in America. Uh, and we always want to question, is it a free market? What are the pressure? I mean, all kinds of things, but, right. but, but I think that's right. Right. That, that it, it, it really is, you know, the, the Baskin Robbins options that people have. And so uh, with technology and the internet, uh, they have accessible more of those, te- those, uh, those options. They can learn more. They can connect with people at different places and so, you know, I think there's a there's a whole kind of uh, ecology of things happening that are right now that's influencing uh, people's decisions to be part of a particular thing. And, you know, maybe the spiritual but not religious is temporary for some people and they're going to go back to church or religion or maybe they're going to go. And so, like, is it permanent? Is it temporary? Like, there's so many questions about this particular moment. And I'll just say one statistic here. Twenty seven percent of Americans say spiritual, but not religious. And the largest generation of that is 30 to 49 year olds uh, who grew up in a particular culture war society who grew up. Right. And, and right. I mean, if we if we broaden what's going on here where religion gained a particular type of authority in the United States. And I think a lot of people in that age bracket, 30 to 49, myself included, a lot of it's responsive to that history, whether we know the details of that history or not. 100%. Okay, let's take a quick break and then we'll come back. We're going to do some more of the, some of the basic data and just describe this group. Okay. This upcoming patron exclusive episode, which comes out tomorrow is a special one. It is a conversation with my own mother. She was visiting to spend some time with our um, infant. And she asked me a question one day. She said, why do you think all this end times teaching is so heavy on doom and guilt and so light on grace? And we started talking about it and quickly realized that we needed to put some headphones on and get down to the studio because it was a really interesting conversation and I'm glad we did that. So that's what we did. We recorded that conversation and uh, had some fun and covered a lot of topics. And uh, I really think you guys will enjoy it. So that's what you get if you're a patron. And if you're not a patron, you can sign up and have access to that conversation along with uh, two such exclusive episodes every month and access to the patron only Facebook group, you can do that at patreon.com slash Dan Koch 
or youhavepermissionpod.com and click become a patron. It's $5 a month. Some people pay more out of the goodness of their heart. And there is also a sliding scale. If money is tight right now, and I don't blame you if it is during this global chaos, uh, shoot me an email. You have permission podcast at gmail.com. Okay, back to the episode. So, Terry, let's get uh, some basic numbers here. You you teach uh, in one of your classes about the spiritual but not religious, so you uh, know the data much better than I. How big is this group? What kind of numbers are we talking about? What's the growth like over the last 10, 20, 50 years, whatever? Uh, yeah, so first let me say that the the, the categories, as, as we've discussed some, are a little bit blurry as it relates to nuns and then the right. assumption that the nuns are spiritual but not religious. And uh, so, you know, spiritual but not religious, I think, is a broader category that maybe many of the nuns fall under um, from, from, from the kind of the, an aggregate data, I guess. Uh, that somewhere between, somewhere between, I know this isn't like the the hardest evidence, but between twenty and thirty percent of Americans identify. It's big. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so you know, a third of the of the, the population. Now, I, I found a few other kind of statistics, though, that in kind of parsing out some of this, uh, of the the ones who said, you know, the nuns, to give you an idea. 72% of people identified as nuns said they seldom or never, ever attend a religious service. But those same people, over 50% said that um, at least once or twice a month, they feel wonder about the universe. Yeah. Uh, and right, so those are, that's a different type of question. Um, and right. so in some, some ways, you know, our quantitative studies are just not catching up to even ask the kind of the appropriate things right. uh, that, that we kind of want to get into. And then, but, but what we've seen really since, uh, really since the 1990s is kind of when the, the big leap of this, let's just say that disidentifiers is when we start really seeing the growth of that, right? I think it was in the 90s that that group that we call the nuns or unaffiliated, uh, like the 90s and early 2000s rose by 200%. Wow. So that's right. when it really jumped up. And it was it's the generation you're talking about, right? It's the yeah. now 30 to 49 generation. Yeah. It's when I'm even growing up when I was still firmly evangelical. I remember people talking about uh, I don't like the combination of politics and religion. Mm-hmm. Is it does the data show that that seems to be the primary driver of this disaffiliation or is it is that one of many causes? I think it's probably one of many causes, uh, but but I think we're right. And in, in, in many ways, Generation X is kind of the, the now if you go back in U.S. history, there's a whole Wayne Roof talks about uh, the kind of the cultural marketplace starting in the 60s and people really jumping on board and experimenting. What we saw in the 60s is a lot of those people coming back. Uh, but we also saw church innovating and responding to it. Right. At that point, we see the yes. Jesus movement. We see Calvary yes. Church. We see those things. Right. So so churches adapt to that those type things but the, but there's something distinct that happens in the 90s though that we tend to see a lot more of the done attitude than the experimenter so to say right. attitude yeah this this episode will air after an episode uh that's coming out very soon uh you know it'll already be out by the time this comes out of i interviewed four baby boomers about the jesus movement people who came to faith during that time and and very specifically, a couple of them said, like two out of four talked about the aesthetics and the fact that this was not a Lawrence Welk, 
kind of, you know, holiday in Christianity. This was like you could be a kid. You could play guitar. And uh, so that like a, a handful of people were open to that. And then that exploded with its own inertia. Right. So they came back, but they came back on their own terms. And so maybe that's kind of what you're you're getting at with like, what are the own terms for today's younger generation? But it's also interesting that it's not the 18 to 30 year olds or whatever. Right. So what is can you say a little bit about the what we see in the differences between those age groups, between, you know, uh, Gen Z, basically, um, and and maybe uh, younger millennials and then older millennials and Gen X? Yeah, so uh, I don't know if anybody's Gen Z is still emerging, so to speak. So it's it's that one's a little bit harder. Sure, but but millennials now are you know growing up and trying to figure out careers and everything else. The millennial generation, what we're seeing, we're actually seeing quite a few duns. But I think what we're seeing is it's. In my mind, this is a continuation of a broader kind of disillusionment with the way the American society is, right? So um, it's it's not only that the religious categories don't work, the political categories don't work anymore, and the millennials, who many of them were raised by Gen Xers, uh, religion is actually a lot of times quite foreign to them at all, right? Because many Gen X parents, there's a, a great book called Losing Our Religion, How the Unaffiliated Are Raising Their Kids, Right. Uh, and I forget the, the author. for that. I'm going to link to that as well as the myth of disenchantment in the show notes, by the way. OK. For if people uh, want to find them. Yeah. yeah. Both of them are great books. And and so it's really interesting that even in that losing our religion book, there's there's something, you know, that they you still want to give your kids meaning of some sort. Right. right. And and so there's some grappling with that going on. And I think the spiritual but not religious is like we were talking, there's in their minds, there's some less baggage and kind of going to, and exploring. Right. Um, and this gets a little bit almost to like an informal, non-organized Unitarian Universalist perspective. Of, yeah. I'm going to keep my kids, all of these things I have access to all of them. And then we'll let them, you know, smorgasbord pick here and there. And right. And, but Jim like Wellman, that. the um, comparative religion researcher from UW talks about how that it doesn't really work. Like that's not a that's not a good strategy to keep your kids in any kind of, you know, like or I guess that's slightly different. If you're talking about unaffiliated parents, he's talking about like basically progressive mainline Protestant parents sort of like wanting to give their children maximum freedom. And he says, look, then the kids leave and Mm -hmm. the ones who go to youth group every week are more likely to stay like, you know, it's not you could argue the morality of it either way and what's what you ought to do, but it's not as effective as like getting kids into habits that will feel then normal to them. You know, you affect their plausibility structures uh, for, for good or ill. Right. But like, it's just, it's just kind of a tool. And basically a lot of progressives just fail to utilize the tool out of fear of misusing the tool, I think is one way of thinking about it. But anyway, that's a different population. So we don't have to go, we don't have to rabbit trail there. Uh, Let's talk about, um, actually, this is maybe just a, a pin for my own future sake, unless you have something to say, but I have a five and a half month old son and I have been thinking theologically constantly about what's going on between him and me. Uh, of course, not any sort of explicit way. He doesn't understand language, but in my experiential way of like 
so many of my experiences with him feel like the best moments of my prayer life. Uh, and I wonder, like, it feels very spiritual to me raising a, a baby, especially as they start to get a little bit more uh, awareness and you're locking eyes and you're you're showing the world to them. Um, I know you have at least one child, many, multiple, two, two kids. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you have anything there, but I, I'm starting to think about the spiritual religious dichotomy through the lens of there's something very spiritual about having this baby and but it's not religious yet unless I choose for it to be religious. And I don't know. Any, anything there? Yeah, but I'll probably take it in a direction you don't want me to go. Um, <laughs> go. That's fine. It, well, just in the sense that it, it's both of my kids are older at this point. My daughter's soon to be 16 and my son will be 20. And so uh, I started young with the, the child rearing. And, um, and and I'm totally with you that there's there's something I don't know that maybe it's an effable uh, about that connection with, um, you know, there's, there's all kinds of theories about it. We have in turn become creators and therefore there's something religious. I don't know sure, about yeah. that at all. But Who one knows? thing I, yeah, one thing I will say about your comment though, what I see in my interviews and then talking just with other people in general, for even for the unaffiliated, we don't have good resources for parents in yes. doing this. Right. And so if there's listeners out there with ideas for kids books and I'm not even I'm not talking curriculum. I'm just talking like if, if you grew up religious and you could and you no longer you disavow that at a, even at a certain level, you completely disavow it or you don't or just or you I'm, partially I'm kind, disavow or yeah, whatever. I mean, yeah. Yeah. One foot in, one foot out. You still need to read your kids books. Right. Yeah. And so like there, I just haven't really discovered kind of things out there that kind of meets this market demand. Uh, and I think that that is wide open. And I would actually love if there's an artist out there, I would love to work on this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's just the plug okay. for something I would like to do. Get a hold of Terry if you want to, <laughs> if you're that person. No, but that, so we don't necessarily have to spend time on this, but um, it, it's a sticky topic. But to be clear, I fully support my understanding of the notion of anti racism as opposed to simply the lack of racism in one's life you know, activity toward systemic dismantling of injustice, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm on board. But I see, I see glimpses of that taking some of that market niche that you're describing. So instead of getting my children books about, you know, the Jesus storybook Bible and all this stuff, like I'm going to get these books about social justice. And we have been Mm -hmm. given some of these books for, from friends for, and I, and I leafed through them and, you know, some of them I loved and other ones I was like, this is a, this is a replacement religion. It's not, it's actually, this is not, uh, I think a helpful one. And this other one is great. And of course, increased representation in the books, uh, you know, hundred percent duh, but there were extremely religious overtones mm-hmm. in one of these books in particular. And it just makes me think it's filling the same psychological need. Uh, you see it. Um, and I, John, uh, John McWhorter wrote a, a article that somebody called people forwarded to me about, how he sees this, but you, you can, you find tithes with people and their GoFundMes and their cash app links. You've got liturgies uh, and, and, and procession with some of the, the ongoing protests, um, especially the protests that maybe aren't like, uh, there's sort of three categories of protests in this sense. In my mind, there's the immediate aftermath stuff, which is like solidarity. Something has to change. Then there's the like pointed protests, which are like, this is what we are protesting for. We want this thing. And then there's like 
the ones that are like, there's just a few people on the corner with signs still mm. doing it, you know, and mm-hmm. not that we should stop, but like what that seems religious to me. That's like going to church on Sunday afternoon instead of Sunday morning, which is when I see them in my neighborhood. Right. And, you know, there's I don't know, there's there is uh, there is public confession. There are conversion narratives. I, I mean, I shared I have an episode like, I don't know, a month ago as we're recording called Testimonies, which is for conversion narratives of people coming to recognize systemic injustice. I, I, I have no problem with that being a conversion narrative. It's religious, though. I mean, like, so that's, you know, we don't have to wade too deep, but I'm, I'm just curious if you have any thoughts about that. Yeah, so this, uh, exactly what you're talking about reminds me, um, so I have an edited volume coming out soon. In the closing chapter, uh, myself and a couple of colleagues, um, and uh, I can get you the, the name of the forthcoming book that you could list, but um, okay. what, we, what we try to do in the, in, the, in the last chapter is to think about the future of religion, spirituality for millennials. And so like, if you can imagine four quadrants and, and I'll be brief on three of them, because I want to get to your point. Uh, so we say that, you know, there's some people that are going to stay in uh, religious institutions. We offer reasons why. Uh, in another quadrant, we say, well, there's people that are going to uh, stay in religious institutions, but they're going to reshape those institutions. And here's why. And then we have kind of the fourth quadrant is actually what I would actually, you know, say the, the more, uh, uh, more obvious spiritual, but not religious. This is finding gurus. This is finding, uh, following, even if you keep with, uh, the, the, uh, triune Godhead in Christianity, your emphasis is on the spirit versus God, the father or Jesus, the son, right? The spirit is malleable. You can do things with it. But then our third quadrant though, the third quadrant actually argues that kind of a political pop, something like that, potentially for millennial generation and those coming after, uh, because of the work they feel needs to be done in our society, would take on the undertones of a religiosity, spirituality. um, And that, and that, so for people who are really at this point getting involved in that, there's something so meaningful there that they've never experienced in an institution or an organized religion. Like, they're connecting with people at kind of like a, like a, a really deep human level of like, I want to value you and I need everybody else to value you and me as well. Right. And they're not finding the same kind of movements. Like it's, it's very organic feeling, although, you know, some of it's structured, right. Oh, I mean, Um, after George Floyd felt super organic, like, yeah. And I, and I think even uh, – I think it's one of those things where, yeah, everybody knows there's an official Black Lives Matter organization, but that's not what 85% of people are saying when they say Black Lives Matter. They they just mean the thing. They're just like, they matter. Wake right. up. It's not like right. a – you know what I mean? It's not like we're raising funds for Planned Parenthood. It's not – you don't get that vibe, at least not at first when there were the mass protests. It was like just so, – you know, it felt super organic. Yeah, and, and and I think a lot of people, maybe some sort of really deep humanism, uh, so, yep. you know, some sort of rich connections that they haven't experienced before. Uh, so, so you know, you grow up, you're disillusioned, you're, you got to go to school, you got to do these forms, you got to do this, you got to do this. And all of a sudden, you're out on the street, and you're holding hands with people you don't know. Um, and you're fighting back against those institutions that you really see as oppressive, uh, as, as binding in a lot of ways. 
there's something really important there. And it may, this moment may actually shape generations. Yeah. To come. Oh, it, I mean, it reminds me of the Jesus movement. It reminds me of Woodstock and Monterey pop festival. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it is, it, it's like our flavor of that, which leads really great into my next question, which is, I want to, I want to talk about some of the reasons that people leave that, that people no longer identify mm-hmm. re- as religious, but maintain this spiritual connection and in particular, my, my first little bullet point here, again, bringing Robert P. Jones back in, he argues uh, – and I mean his arguments are pretty empirically backed and they're mm-hmm. pretty convincing that latent racism within evangelicalism but also in other expressions of American Christianity is a major driver of people leaving uh, those communities. What do you think – I mean if, if you have any sort of color to add to his, uh, to his point there – I'd love to hear that, and I'd love to hear what you think about that basic argument. Uh, so first let me say that I think Robert Jones's uh, – let me say specifically The End of White Christian America, which was the book where he was trying to say the demographics are greatly shifting, broadly speaking, and here's why, and tries to get at, at least the initial roots. And now it's his book, which I haven't read. Uh, too long white. Um, I can, uh, I actually use the end of white Christian America in my religion in America class. Okay. Wow. Uh, yeah. I'll put a link yeah, to that as well on in the yeah, notes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, uh, it's so well done. It's written more. Yes. There's all kinds of data in it, but it's written for a popular audience because he, right. uh, cause Jones, I think is, uh, he wants the church to exist at the end of that book. He really wants to say like, look, the church has in Protestantism has given America a lot and so, like, I don't want to dis- – he doesn't want to dismiss it, but he does want to say that particularly with the evangelicalism, it really seems to be oriented around racist structures. Um, and, uh, and, and, this, and the stats are really, really convincing of evangelicals who say, no, the Black Lives Matter movement doesn't have any real justification in our society that uh, – his data starts to break down those, those things where people, evangel- white evangelicals end up saying like, well, whites are oppressed just as much as blacks in our country. So this opens right? up a market niche. For, like, as you were saying, this is the way I'm connecting them is you said things like uh, there are these millennials and, and, you know, a little above, a little below uh, age wise who are having these experiences and they've never had them before in their religious tradition. And then they look at their Bible and they see the Good Samaritan mm. and the woman caught in adultery and, you know, all the like ethnocentrism being smashed by yeah. Jesus and New Testament writers. And they're like, what the hell is yeah. in here? Why was it never in there, in that building, in that community? I'll just find it out here where people are clear eyed. One thing that's cool about that is you have a bunch of black Christians who are, I, I wouldn't say leading the discussion on anti-racism. Uh, but like very much in the mix. Mm-hmm. And that's like a kind of one of the very cool byproducts of all of this is like uh, it's my opinion that sort of the spiritual heroes of America of the last hundred years are mostly black Christians and they just haven't gotten their due for that mm-hmm. uh, because of, you know, all the ways that a million reasons, you know, bias in media, bias in consumption of media, all the stuff that Robert Jones gets into uh, about the way that, you know, this latent white supremacy um, is, is is in these structures. But uh, so there it's refreshing 
And then here it is. And then like, well, of course I'm going to not do that thing anymore. That specifically denied the dignity of my black brothers and sisters, Mm -hmm. which is right in my text, you know, the whole time. Yeah. So it's, it's really interesting. You're exactly right. The civil rights movement was led by so many religious leaders and there are, uh, religious people of color in the Black Lives Matter movement, although it seems to be interesting, a bit disconnected from the institutional church in the way that it was in the 60s, right? Oh, it's it's definitely different. Yeah. And they're a much smaller contingent than they were. uh, And even with MLK and Malcolm X, like, well, Malcolm X was Muslim. Like, it was still, there was the Islamic Brotherhood, or that's not the one. Uh, That's the- Nation of Islam. (laughs) Nation of Islam, right. You know, so there were institutional and there was the AME denomination and these other mm-hmm. denominations. So that's all. I mean, we are almost night and day in terms of our trust for institutions mm-hmm. compared to the the generations that were a part of the civil rights structure in the 60s. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and you actually even see even statistically uh, a decline in people attending the black church as well in the United States. It's yeah. not as drastic as, say, the white demographics. Uh, but, you, you, you know, it. But there is a decline. What you don't see a decline is typically the number of people who still believe in God, who are really gung-ho in the the black community, Hmm. still want to keep that stuff. So there is Um, a – it's a spiritual but not religious kind of a thing there too. It it is a little bit of – Maybe they would put a little more meat on the bone maybe or something like that. I think that's right. I think that's right. You know, um, a a good friend of mine uh, who's black, he always tells me that all black people have the Holy Ghost. We don't need the church, you know? Uh, and so, uh, but, you yeah. know, but I, I think it's, it's, it's happening within uh, non-white communities as well. Maybe not to the same degree and maybe not in the same way, yeah. but, it, but, but the shifts are happening there too. They are happening. I want to, I want to bring up an example from uh, pop culture that has helped me think about it uh, in a different way recently. So my wife and I just finished, the second uh, currently final season, there's another one coming of the show Rami on Hulu. Uh, Rami Youssef is a comedian. He's a Muslim comedian. Uh, he's I, I guess he's like a progressive Muslim, probably in his own life. Um, but he made this just fantastic show. Uh, I highly recommend it to literally anybody. It is like uh, it's sort of like if Master of None was a lot more explicitly about religion and the main mm. character uh, was was really was truly a religious person, not just sort of culturally Muslim. So uh, there is a scene in this without, without giving anything away, where uh, there's a character who is a gay man. Uh, at the time we see him, he's in his fifties or something, and he's speaking with another character who's gay. And you know, maybe the other character is kind of wanting to see if they might do something. And the and the guy is like, I I chose. Like Allah does not want us to be this way. I chose my wife and my kids. He's got kids in the the character does. And I'm genuinely happy, he says to this other gay character who's closeted, right? So uh, the Quran and uh, Islamic culture uh, have less uh, leeway, less wiggle room than Christianity, but it represents something. There is a real trade-off. And I think that you probably know this better than me in the literature, but like costly religious belonging produces – a a higher sense of belonging. Mm -hmm. There is like, there is a sense in which if, if some of our religious communities and it will vary by denomination, by family, whatever, but there, they will end up setting some boundaries, right? Because if you have no boundaries, if you're just full on Unitarian Universalist, 
nobody's really going to disagree with you. And also no one's going to come to the service on Sunday morning. So there, there is this push and pull. Uh, the question I think for me is, or the saddest part about the racism issue is that's not one that needed to be there. That's not a, a real boundary. Like if you're a Muslim and you believe that the Quran was divinely dictated directly to Muhammad in Arabic. I, what I don't know what you're going to do. I don't know how you get around that. But you do not have to be a racist and and a Christian. Like that's that is completely like optional, right? So I don't know what you want to do with that. Uh, but I just think this is such an interesting angle to come at, and I'm I'm curious what you think. Yeah. So p- particularly evangelicalism. It's a super interesting history that we see in the 60s, a a general trend from mainline churches to those who remain in churches to evangelical churches. And there was a great study done, and the title of the study is escaping me. But even in the 60s, the argument was the more commitment, the more fundamental you are, the more parameters you set up in your religious community, the more likely people will uh, stay within that that church group, right? And so, and this is what I'm always trying to tell my students. Yes, religion creates cohesion, but that cohesion is typically at the expense of somebody. Yep. Right. And so, like you, everybody can't be an insider to your group, right? Yeah, we, otherwise, we, you're we not have, an insider, right? Right. Because we haven't figured out how to universalize all this yet. As, as humans, we're just simply not there. And so it is, it is interesting that when you, I'm thinking here of Randall Balmer and uh, Sarah Posner's new book about evangelicals, it, it seems to almost be that race was the cohesive issue within that movement, uh, that you don't really, you know, uh, although many evangelicals want to announce that it was abortion that was the issue that prompted them to get involved politically, that's simply not the case. It was actually Brown versus the Board of Education that prompted evangelicals and fundamentalists to really move into politics. That and one so, is tough, though, because it's true historically that mm, that's what got the moral majority going. But yeah. it was fledgling until they switched to abortion and then it blew up in terms of the numbers. So it's true from the leadership perspective that that's what started it. But if I were to say to like your average pew sitting evangelical the main thing was race there. No, it wasn't. And I think that the numbers show that, that like the average person's aunt was actually fired up about abortion, you know, and for whatever, even if that's misguided or whatever, you know? Yeah. Although, although Posner's book really does, I think show well, that I, it's, yeah, it's, okay. it's, it's the uh, Brown versus board of education. And then the, the correlating move of the IRS, uh, the tax exempt status of Bob yes. Jones University, right? Yeah. yeah well, right. And, and Christian universities. And yeah. this is really what starts to fuel it. And then you're exactly right, though. Falwell is is able to use abortion specifically yeah. as a way to really energize in a different kind of way. But even to make the argument that it's about funding, I, we're getting a little in the weeds here. But this matters to me because <laughs> I, I do kind of want to always defend the average faithful person mm. while I am completely willing to criticize leadership who make these decisions, you know, on their behalf. Um, but to say it's about funding, I mean, but funding is also about abortion. It's about the little sisters of the poor not having to give contraception. It's about who we are allowed to hire. It's about, you know, so I just think that to say, well, it was about Brown versus board, which led to funding. And then the funding is still important today. Well, yeah, but that doesn't mean that the Brown versus board is still important today. You know, the funding hits 10 topics that 
Christian school administrators are worried about, for instance, and their right. ability to exercise their faith in an educational context. So well, I'm not I'm not totally disagreeing. I should look at yeah, the yeah. book. I haven't read it. But so, OK, as we as we get towards the end here, I want to save just the yeah. last few minutes for this. So we, we've now just spent the uh, last 20 minutes or so, but a lot of the conversation. Uh, why do people identify as no longer religious? But let's end on a little bit of a the positive account. Why still identify as spiritual? What do we know? from the relevant studies that people that the majority of these people don't just become agnostics or atheists. Like what is it that they are saying? What do the qualitative studies show? What do you have to say about that? So I think what the the studies are showing is that is that people are, are still looking for some sort of meaning uh, in the world and whether that's uh, a spiritual, whether that's a supernatural, you know, if, if uh, a lot of the studies that I think are really interesting right now is asking Americans um, and even Europeans, how many believe in aliens, how many believe in supernatural, you know, those are very high statistics, even from Europe that tends to be uh, not committed to religious institutions very much, uh, very high numbers still when it comes to those types of things. So those are the type of things that I find really, really interesting. Yeah. There's some kind of uh, reflex we have or, or desire because, you know, yeah, right. Aliens and or crystals, yeah. you know, moon crystals or whatever. Yeah. 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 You know, and 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 I, and I think there's a although now in the pandemic, we're shut down a little bit, but um, getting to like sacred sites, particularly of indigenous people. And right. We're talking Sedona um, and uh, but then we're talking neo-paganism kind of in well, Europe. And Burning Man kind of there's a Venn yeah. diagram there with sort of the yeah. Burning Man culture as well. Right. No, it's exactly right. And so whether that is trying to find meaning in going to a particular type of place and feeling some sort of energy, uh, whether that is uh, connecting in some sort of protest movements, that's still there, right? They may be disillusioned with the institutions, but there doesn't seem to be disillusionment with, uh, maybe sometimes it's with God generic, uh, but if you translate that into supreme being, there doesn't seem to be as much kind of disillusionment with that kind of thing, which signals, I think that, you know, they're still looking, still seeking. Again, I don't know if this is temporary. I don't know if it's permanent, uh, but there's, there's definitely something going on. And I don't know that the, I don't know very well how the church has responded to this. Speaking of, you know, the church that is kind of losing the members to this, I suspect that the, the church will reevaluate at some point and, and and try to meet some of these needs, although we'll see where that goes. So my last question for you, uh, this is taking, I had you send me your syllabus for this class that you <laughs> teach and, and under your learning objectives, uh, which actually ended up being quite helpful. You said you want the students at the end of the class to be able to describe the ways in which a given religion reflects a way of thinking, a cultural heritage, a larger set of cultural values or aspects of society. My question for you is, is the spiritual but not religious community cohesive enough to talk about that? Like, how would you answer that question? How does this group, as we describe it, reflect a way of thinking, a cultural heritage, a larger set of cultural values, or is it too diverse to really say anything? Yeah, so first let me say that you're definitely right. It's not homogenous. It's exceptionally diverse as far as the practices. But what I think we can talk in in general kind of ways are uh, particular attitudes 
towards things in our society, right? And, and religion to me is a category, but I try to think about it more of diffused in the society and where can I find it, right? So I teach religion and popular culture and things like that, um, religion and sports, things like that. And so uh, in thinking about it, though, uh, one scholar called it some sort of um, that, that what we're seeing is, is a bit of a cultural amnesia currently, that because uh, Gen X or boomers or whoever aren't giving and requiring a, a very particular kind of religious heritage, that uh, newer generations are quite divorced from those things, right? And so they're unfamiliar with them. They don't make sense of them. They don't translate well in, into their world that they're living now. So I think, in a sense, we're seeing some of that. Um, and I think the spiritual but not religious is a bit of um, getting back to that that cultural marketplace. And it's it's not simply that there, we may have too strict of a definition of what we consider spiritual right now. And so they may be finding meaning in other things. And I think the pandemic moment uh, is, is a really fascinating moment where a lot of those options are taken away from us, right? So if you're a person who says, look, I'm spiritual, but not religious. And what that means is I'm a Seattle Seahawks fan. And that's where I find meaning in that stadium and amongst people in this energy. Um, and it feels like a battle and it feels like I'm part of it. And I'm, I identify as the 12th man. Well, what happens if we don't have a football season? Right. And so like that, and that's just one example. Uh, but if I'm a person who goes to a pilgrimage with a guru in Sedona every March, but I couldn't go to it this year. So like, I, I think it's this pandemic moment is like really, really bringing to the forefront a lot of these questions. And the, I don't know that we're doing the studies we should be doing to capture the moment right now. Uh, but what I think is post this moment, we're really going to see if there's a return to religion, right? That if there is something about the American heritage attached to particularly white Protestantism, does that come back? I don't know. I, I genuinely don't know what that's going to be like. Or, or are people going to be so undisciplined now because of you can't, you know, like your Facebook stream it, but I'm in my boxers and I kind of like it. But when it's all over and I can go back, do I feel comfortable going back? Like, I don't know. I think, um, yeah, I'm I think so this fascinated moment, by that. Yeah. Yeah. This moment is so unpredictable right now that I think it's going to shape the, the conversation in particular ways that we haven't fathomed yet. Guys, if you're wondering, like, what gets religion researchers really excited, I can just tell you that Terry was beaming that whole <laughs> last three or three or four minutes. Just like you were so pumped about yeah, that I'm, stuff. I'm, uh, and especially as a person who has been working on a paper the last year of kind of millennials, religion, spirituality, and the tra trajectories, you know, like I didn't anticipate the pandemic, you know, right, so it, yeah. and so it was like, such, I don't know. I, I don't know yet. Um, but as a researcher, I want, I, I want people capturing the moment and I want us to be ready right when it's over to kind of quantitative and qualitatively jump on this and, 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 and be able to see how this fits with other trends. Yeah, man. Well, Terry, thank you so much for your time. Uh, again, I've, I, I'll mention all this stuff in the show notes in the outro. Um, yeah. Just thanks for chatting with me, dude. Oh, I appreciate it. It was good to uh, reconnect and I love talking about this stuff. So it was good. 
thank you to Scott Can Jamie for editing this week's conversation with Terry. Next week, habit, virtue, prayer, and science. I speak with a neuroscientist and a social scientist about what that sounds like. Really interesting chat, what we know about habits, how they relate to faith, um, just, just all that kind of stuff. Really, really quite important stuff for the life of faith to think about building the kind of habits that we want and avoiding the kind of habits we don't want. So that's what's coming next week. And uh, yeah, you know, patreon.com slash Dan Coke. You know the drill. I say the same stuff every week. So we'll just leave it there. Thank you guys so much for listening and uh, we'll see you soon. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how.